Amen. Open your Bibles with me, please, to 1 Timothy chapter 6. We're going to have a one-off this morning. We, uh, as you know, the practice here at Redeemer is what we call the Lectio Continua, that is, preaching verse by verse through books of the Bible. But on occasion, uh, we will pause and do a topical or a one-off sermon, and that's what we have today. <clears throat> so turn with me in your Bibles to the book of 1 Timothy chapter 6. <clears throat> As you know, <clears throat> and we've mentioned, the boss is back next week, and he'll pick off right where Pastor Miller left off with our Lectia Continua. Uh, as I pondered Jordan coming back next week in the start of a new fall season, and despite the ever-accumulating mess of dust uh, around us, the many blessings that the Lord has afforded us over the years, forgive me, came flooding through. I decided to do a one-off with hopefully a timely message on Paul's exhortation to the young minister, Timothy, concerning the man of God. So stand with me and let's read together. First Timothy chapter 6, we'll be just reading verses 11 through 16. <clears throat> the, inherent, uh, the inerrant word of the living God. <clears throat> but as for you, O man of God, flee these things. Pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness. Fight the good fight of faith. Take hold of the eternal life which you were called and about which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. I charge you in the presence of God who gives life to all things and of Christ Jesus who is his testimony before Pontius Pilate made the good confession <clears throat> to keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which he will display at the proper time, who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone is immortal, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see, to him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of the Lord stands forever. You may be seated. <clears throat> Lord Jesus, in as this season again and the cycle of life that you've given us, Change again as the routines of fall, we anxiously rate, await the return of our pastor and leader. Give us a glimpse this morning of your heart and your love for us as we rediscover this gift that you have always given your people, the ones who bring us your word, the man of God. Amen. <clears throat> As we look this morning at what the man of God is from Scripture, let's first think about two extremes that people have when they hear this word, man of God, or are confronted with someone who calls himself a man of God. 
I have experienced both of these extremes. The first is an overemphasis of the modern-day prophet. The second is just the opposite, a total dismissal of the belief that there even is a calling to ministry or ordination to the ministry. As I said, I've experienced both of these extremes. I remember it as if it were yesterday. Even the metal folding chair I was sitting on as our Sunday evening service opened. It was over 44 years ago. As one of several young men in this brand new upstart church, trying to understand this newfound hunger that we had to learn more about the Word of God, to give ourselves more wholly to serving the Lord Jesus, whom we were just getting to know. Our, quote, man of God, and I say that with no capitals in it, opened and read his text to us. There may have been 35 people in this uh, a chiropractic clinic that had a public area that we were meeting in. He opened his Bible and read his text just three verses that night from 2 Kings chapter 2, verses 23 and 25. You can turn there if you like, but it's part of the Elisha narrative. Most of you will be familiar with the story, but it may be new To some of you, here are the three words that were read to us before the sermon. He went up there uh, to Bethel, and while he was going up on the way, some small boys came out of the city and jeered at him, saying, go up, you bald head, go up, you bald head. Now, of course, We didn't know up until this point that Elisha had a bald head, but he did. But what happens next is pretty astonishing. This is verse 24 after these small boys, and you kind of take that small boy with a grain of salt. They were probably the equivalent of a biker gang of 20-year-olds, but we're not going to... spend much time in this text, but go up, you bald head, go up, you bald head. And he turned around, and when he saw them, he cursed them in the name of the Lord. And two she-bears came out of the woods and tore 42 of the boys. And then, just as nothing even happened, the text says, from there he went on to Mount Carmel, and from there he returned to Samaria with the boys laying on the ground. Now, in our sermon, for the next 50 minutes, we heard story after story after story to convince us of two things. Number one, this preacher was a modern Elisha, a man of God. And two, if any one of us dared to challenge him, let alone make fun of him, 
the she-bears would surely again, again rise out of the woods. Now, I can hardly even say that uh, and not sound like it's tongue-in-cheek. Only between the ranting, the pounding, the yelling from that pulpit, we were reminded that she-bears could come in many forms. Car wrecks, cancer, death of children, etc. Needless to say, spiritual abuse like this does two things. It first damages its victims, and secondly, it catches up with the deluded narcissist. In this case, both were true. That is one extreme way of interpreting this Word, these words, man of God. The other uh, is to do nothing whatsoever to set apart a unique ministry. No special calling. The ones in authority, teaching, preaching, leading, shepherding, can be really any one of us. So our aim this morning is to discover first, what does the Bible teach about the term man of God and then to look quickly at the four characteristics of the man of God that Paul gives to Timothy. Now, this man of God is a, is a unique biblical title of respect. It's applied to the prophets, some, and religious leaders, some, by God himself. The term appears 76 times in 70 verses, and is applied to 12 individuals in the Old Testament. Every one of them is called to be a direct messenger of God and given specific words to declare. Moses is referred to the man of God in six books of the Bible. Deuteronomy, Joshua, Psalms, Psalm 90, Ezra, Chronicles, First and Second Chronicles. Moses is the only person called uh, a man of God in the Pentateuch. The prophets that you, were, that you would all expect, Samuel, David, Elijah, and Elisha are referred to as the man of God. And then some you wouldn't know or perhaps wouldn't even remember, several unnamed men who God uses to bring messages against wicked kings. There's Shemaiah, and even the angel of the Lord himself appears to Samson's mother in Judges 13 and is called the man of God. Twelve individuals, 70 verses, and only one thing really in common. They were chose specifically by God to declare his word and his message. Then we get to the New Testament. And you may be surprised to learn there is only one man in the New Testament that is called the man of God, and it's in our text this morning. Look again at verse 11 of 1 Timothy 6. Paul says, but as for you, O man of God, the only direct reference in the New Testament. Now, you already know the two words that Paul uses in this phrase. Anthropos and Theos. 
Anthropos is where we get anthropology, the study of men, the study of human, uh, human beings. And then theos, the word for God. But in this instance, they are in a special genitive or possessive case. It's anthrope, theu, with the personal article, o, man, and then the meaning is the man that's possessed by God, belonging to God, God's man, the man of God. And in our text this morning, Paul lays out in verses 11 and 12, four characteristics or signs or instructions to his son in the faith. And in typical form, as Paul often does, he lays them out in pairs. And we'll go through all four in verses 11 and 12. In verse 11, Paul instructs Timothy to flee these things while following or pursuing these other things. Fleeing and following in verse 11. And in verse 12, Paul exhorts the man of God to fight the good fight of faith and then grab hold of eternal life, fighting and faithful in verse 12, fleeing and following in verse 11, and fighting and faithful in verse 12. Let's take a look at all four. Now, if you actually started in your Bible at Genesis chapter 1, planning to do, go through the entire Bible to try to discover a biblical theology or an explanation of what the man of God is in all of the pages of Scripture, it wouldn't be until Deuteronomy chapter 33 that you would first see those words, the man of God relating to Moses. And you, wouldn't, and, and you would have read it for the 77th time right here seeing Paul's exhortation. And all 77 times uh, the Bible uses the man of God, <clears throat> you would have found it very interesting that, especially if you feel called to the ministry or the office in the church, but you would see that it, it applies every single time directly to that man who was giving the message, and you might have a tendency to dismiss it and say, well, uh, these four exhortations are fine for Timothy. It's for them, not me. And I would understand that until you got to the 78th and the last mention of the man of God. And that would be in 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, a verse you already know, and let's read that together. All Scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. The 78th time the words man of God is used, surely Paul is meaning this for Timothy, and he, and he does. It's in 2 Timothy. But just as Paul's list of qualifications for elders in 1 Timothy chapter 3 uh, are applicable to the duties that all Christians share, 
They're just required for qualification for ministry and for officers. And we'll see the same, we see the same thing here in 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. The word of God is profitable for teaching, for rebuke, for correction, for training in righteousness, but not just for Timothy, not just for preachers, not just for elders or for deacons. They are profitable for every believer. That not only the man of God, but every believer is to be equipped for every good work. So don't check out uh, at the last half of this sermon because you don't think it applies to you. It applies to everyone here, not just those who are seeking, like Timothy, to be ordained into gospel Ministry as a teaching elder, pastor, ruling elder, shepherd, or deacon. But if you are here, or listening, or watching, and you feel that tug to ministry, you feel a desire to serve the church as an officer, pen in hand, please, This is your calling. He is speaking directly to you. Verse 11, the man of God does first flee. The man of God flees. But as for you, O man of God, flee these things. The word flee there in the Greek is fuego, where we get our word fugitive. It's a continual sense of always running away from danger. Continually, non-stopping, always looking, always running away from danger. We know here and in 2 Timothy 2, Paul warns Timothy to flee youthful lusts. But here he says, O man of God, flee these things. What are these things? Turn and look up at verse 5 in chapter 6 for the clue. You read in the middle of verse 5, men that have depraved minds, deprived of the truth, who suppose that godliness is a means of gain. In other words, that being a minister, a religious person, is a way to get rich and increase your wealth, Paul says, flee this mindset. He goes on, but those who want to get rich fall into temptation and snare and many foolish and harmful desires which plunge men into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is the root of all sorts of evil, and some by longing for it have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. Already, more than once, when we see the text that is our preaching assignment today, the natural thing to say is, well, here he goes, another sermon on money. And it's not. It's a warning to ministers primarily not to lust after money. We've all heard these words from the pulpit speak to the the entire people of God, 
But it's the context directly to the man of God when Paul says, flee from these things. He's referring precisely to these things attracted, attached to the love of money. The evils and vices associated with financial gain, greed and all its attendant iniquities. The strong and motivating desire for money has no place in the ministry. I'll say it again. The strong, motivating desire for money has no place in gospel ministry. This you must run from. In 2 Corinthians 2, Paul says, we are not like many peddling the word of God, which means a huckster, a con man, selling something for personal gain, something that is substandard. We would have to be blind to not see the materialistic condition of the church in America. The church today has bought into this blasphemous wealth and prosperity theology that has made God the author and an accommodating theology that turns this fleeing, Paul says, to Timothy on its head. Just the opposite. We need to reject this doctrine of demons that says God wants us all to be rich. He doesn't. Paul said, I have coveted no man's gold, no man's silver, no man's apparel. You may be a preacher, you may be a pastor, but if you're in it for the money, you are not a man of God. Flee these things. Secondly, a man of God is known only, not only by what he flees from, but what he follows after. He's a running man. We only have one running man of God in this church. It's not me and it's not Pastor Miller. But what does he run to? Back to verse 11. Flee from these things, you O man of God, and pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, perseverance, and gentleness. Pursue, go after, follow after righteousness and godliness, Christ-likeness. Righteousness is described as those acts, the duties of charity, doing what is right. Along with godliness, this is an internal desire and motivation, a right motivation to do those things, righteousness and godliness. Right motivation and the desires of the heart. Righteousness done without godliness is hypocrisy. Then faith, what is believed and is what is trusted by the man of God. We can't fake this. The man of God who teaches soundly without love is a banging symbol, almost annoying, yet that man of God who loves his flock. That man of God who the people know love them. They are the first to know it, and it is so beautiful that no one can behold it. That man of God who loves his people, that prays for his people, that loves his people, that sacrifices for his people. It's the motivation of love. 
You can't fake that either. Finally, perseverance and gentleness. Perseverance is simply just long-term patience, proven by time. There's something about longevity, of patience and steadfastness of the man of God. These characteristics feed off each other and are intertwined. And finally, this term gentleness. And those of us that know our New Testament know that Paul sometimes literally invents words. He invents words that are nowhere to be found by taking two different words and putting them together, a cognate. And he does this in this passage and for this word, gentleness. The only time it's ever used in the Bible. And it's just breathtaking when we see it. Paul here for gentleness makes up this compound word that's a combination of gentleness, meaning meek and humble, but here he adds a second word to it, suffering. That the man of God is gentle, suffering gently. Gentleness here is a softness of speech and temperament, attitude, deference to others. A quietness in comportment. And this, is a, this term is associated by Paul with suffering. A constant weariness of heart and soul. The pain of seeing sheep displaced, upset, disgruntled, criticizing and angry. This suffering is a silent suffering. It's soul-piercing. But the man of God must remain gentle. Paul says to Timothy, flee these things and follow these. Now as we notice this fleeing and following are traits that are pretty much inside traits. Traits of attitude within. Traits that the heart of man has that tells us who the man of God is. Verse 12 tells us what he does. Look at verse 12 again. People may or may not see what the man flees or what he follows quietly, but the characteristics in verse 12 cannot be unseen. 12, fight the good fight of faith. Take hold of eternal life to which you were called and about which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. Fighting and faithful. The man of God is a fighter. We know in the Bible that the man of called, uh, that, that the, what the Lord uses to describe the man of God are a boxer, a wrestler, a soldier, a battler, a protagonist, a warrior. It's what every Christian does. And if you are not fighting any battle, you need to check and ask yourself, am I a Christian? For it's what we do. 
We wage war. And we wage war against the kingdom of darkness. We wage war against the sin of our own flesh. We wage war against false teaching, false doctrine, and error. The Apostle Paul, looking at ministry, said, There is both an open door and many adversaries. Paul came to the end of his life, and what did he say? I have fought the good fight. Are you a fighter, believer? Men of God in training, you're going to be put out in ministry at a time when the church and the evangelical movement isn't interested in fighting. In fact, any hint of fighting is often seen as uncaring, uncouth, unwise, proud. And why do we fight? Look at the end of verse 12. Fight that good fight of faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called and about which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. What is Paul telling Timothy to fight for? The eternal life which the Lord called him to and he confessed. Man of God, Paul is telling Timothy and us, fight away. And why? Because you are not like everybody else in the world. You're battling for the souls of men, women, and children. The issues you deal with are everlasting issues. We're warring with the forces of hell, the powers of sin, the corruption of the culture, the strength of the world system around us, and the pitiful, pitiful weakness of the church. You fight for one reason, the eternal souls of men, women, and children. The gospel, brothers and sisters, is worth fighting for. Get in the fight. So what to look for in a pastor? <clears throat> when you're looking for a man of God, what are you looking for? You're looking for a man who flees the, corrupt, the corrupting influence of sin and money. The man who's following after righteousness and godliness. A man obsessed with loving and pleasing God and a man that will fight to the very end being faithful to his call to preach love and patiently bring men, women, and children into eternal life. A young minister <clears throat> came up to Donald, Donald Gray Barnhouse, the great pastor of 10th Presbyterian Church in Philadelphia, and said, <clears throat> Dr. Barnhouse, he said, I would give the world if I could preach like you and win people to Christ. And Dr. Barnell said, good, that's exactly what it'll cost you. This is our duty, men. This is our calling. As we briefly have looked at Paul's definition of the man of God, and as we begin to close, with Dr. Stone coming back next week, I wanted to draw your attention to what I consider the most exciting thing about what the Lord has given us here in this church. Brothers and sisters, I want you to know <clears throat> there is nothing special about you. There is nothing unique 
about Redeemer Presbyterian Church in McKinney, Texas. There's nothing special about this place. If we are anything, if we want to be known as anything, we need to strive to be ordinary. We meet every Lord's Day in an ordinary way, don't we? We worship our triune God in his ordinary means of grace. Word, sacrament, prayer. This is only, this is not only what we're called to do. This is only what we're called to do. To be called together by the Lord to worship, to sing his songs, the psalms and spiritual songs. Singing loud with each voice. Singing with all of our hearts while listening and hearing our brothers and sisters sing. It doesn't get any better than that, does it? Yes, it does. Then praying together, listening to the man of God lead us in prayer, being convicted by the reading of the law, the confessing of our sins corporately and individually, and then receiving God's pardon. And those words, you are forgiven. It doesn't get any better than that, does it? Yes, it does. Then, confessing our common faith. The faith once delivered to the saints. Today we uh, confess the Apostles' Creed, connecting us with believers from the early third century on. Confessing the apostolic doctrine handed down by the apostles, the, 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 the men who wrote the Scriptures themselves. It doesn't get any better than that, does it? Yes, it does. Then hearing the word of God preached by God's man, hearing week by week, month by month, year by year, the oracles of God, books opened up, explained, and convicting and comforting our fragile hearts, feeling and experiencing the water of the gospel applied to our thirsty souls every week. It doesn't get any better than that, does it? Yes, it does. Then experiencing the sacraments, those instituted by Christ every week, hearing the words of institution coming together with bread, around bread and wine at the table to receive from the Lord faith, encouragement, and strength, experiencing the initiation of believers and their children into the visible church through the waters of baptism, while we re-experience, think of, and improve on our own baptisms, does it get any better on earth than experiencing all of these every week, knowing the sovereign, triune, creator God of the universe is worshipped here? No, it doesn't. Except, I propose, the Lord by His grace completely by His grace, not by our asking, not by our planning, not even by our hopes and dreams. The Lord Himself has given us a blessing and a ministry that none of your elders, pastors, or deacons could have foreseen. And everyone in this room is blessed to be part of it. That is, the training, the equipping, the influencing, the guiding of what could end up being an entire generation of future men of God. Future Timothys for the ministry. 
And make no mistake, only the Lord could have done something like this. This was not on our radar when we as a search committee met to find a replacement for our beloved Pastor McGee. Dr. Stone's giftings were evident to all when that call was made nearly six years ago. But now our senior pastor and preacher is also responsible for the pastoral and preaching training for every ministerial student at RTS in Dallas. I want you to think with me, just in the last 18 months, the last year and a half here in North, the North Texas Presbytery, those who have been under Dr. Stone being trained, mentored by me and others, and now either having received a call's or are getting ready to think about this number. There are those among us. Mike Jones, who will be preaching tonight. Tony Mangifesti. Cesar Restrepo, looking for a Spanish call. Matthew Crawbuck, Ross Early, now at Park Cities. Farsi speakers, our own Masood. And <clears throat> Town Norse, Hamid. Current pastors, Brad Denton, now, now ministering in Lakewood. See the flyer on the outside of the table. Sterling Tyler, now a pastor at Lakeside in South Lake. He still worships us with us on Sunday night until they get one. So come and meet him if you've never met Sterling. It includes Pastor Evans at Cornerstone. And of course, Pastor Miller and myself also trained under Dr. Stone. And this semester, there are 15 new ministerial students in Dr. Stone's Homiletics 1 Communications 1 class. How many of those will be future church planners, pastors, and maybe with us as well? And we're just getting warmed up. And as these future men of God worship with us, get to know us, See how you participate in worship, how you love the Lord and His Word and the Reformed faith and the ordinary means of grace. You influence these men. Ask any of them I just mentioned, and they will give you a hearty amen. And I quote from Dr. Stone in the recent RTS Ministry Leadership Magazine, quote, before we can build the preaching, we must build the preacher. Seminary students must be children, and I will add, men of God before they can preach God's word. They must be lovers of Christ before they can preach Christ's love. And they must stroll with the Spirit before they can preach in the Spirit's power. Oh, you can talk about what's wrong with the world, what's wrong with our nation, what's wrong with the home, what's wrong with the church. I'll tell you what's needed. We need men of God. I'll close with this. I read this a long time ago in a popular preaching book. It's from an unnamed source. It has no title. But it's what every church should do with their men of God, their pastors. Listen. First, fling him into his office and tear the office sign from the door and nail up a sign that says, study. We're going to have signs that say study. 
Right down there. I promise you. Take him off the mailing list. Look him up. Lock him up with his books and his Bible. Slam him down on his knees before the text and the broken hearts of the lives of a hurting flock and a holy God. Force him to be the one man in the community who knows who God is. Throw him into the ring to box with God until he learns how short his arms are. Engage him to wrestle with God all night and let him come out only when he is bruised and beaten into becoming your blessing. Shut his mouth forever, spouting remarks. Stop his tongue forever, tripping lightly over non-essential issues. Require him to have something to say before he dares break the silence and bend his knee in the, lonely, in the lonesome valley of suffering. Burn his eyes with weary study. Wreck his emotional poise with worry over this, his life before God. Make him exchange his pious stance for a humble walk with God and man. Make him spend and be spent only for the glory of God. Rip out his telephone. Burn up his ecclesiastical success sheets. Give him a Bible. Tie him to his pulpit and make him preach the word of the living God. Test him. Quiz him. Examine him. Shame him for his good comprehension of finances, game scores, and politics. You may laugh at his frustrated effort to play a psychiatrist. Form yourself a choir and raise a chant and haunt him with it day and night. Sir, we would see Jesus. And when at last he does enter the pulpit, ask him if he has a word from God. If he doesn't, dismiss him. Tell him, I can read the morning newspaper, pastor. I can digest television and movie commentaries. I can think through the day's superficial problems. I can manage the community's weary fun drives. I can bless the sorted baked beans and green beans ad infinitum just as well as you can. But command him not to come back until he's read and reread, written and rewritten, until he can stand up worn and forlorn and say, Thus saith the Lord. Break him across the board of ill-gotten popularity. Smack him hard with his own prestige. Corner him with questions about God. Cover him with demands for a celestial wisdom and give him no escape until he's, his back is against the wall of the word. Sit down before him and listen to the only word he has left. Give him a chapter of the Bible and order him to walk around it, camp on it, sup with it, and come at last to speak it backwards and forwards until it all rings with the truth of eternity. And when he's burned out by flaming word, when he's consumed at last by the fiery grace blazing through him, 
When he's privileged finally to translate that truth of God to man and finally transformed from this earth to heaven, then bear him away gently and blow a muted trumpet and lay him down softly, placing a two-edged sword on his coffin and raise the tombstone triumphant. For he was a brave soldier of the word, and ere he died, a man of God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for faithful men of God. I thank you for those among us, our pastors, our elders, our deacons. I thank you for the amazing men of God that, that lead every one of our families and homes. We thank you that in your grace, you've called us. In your grace, you've kept us. And by your grace, you've empowered us to this task. Many through all the centuries who stand in that long line of men of God, we pray, O oh God, that you raise up many, many more among us. Our time so desperately needs them. We pray that all of us as a church family would be having the privilege of living under the example of such devotion to the Lord and to the truth that our own lives are profoundly enriched. And together, Lord, we become ever increasingly more conformed to the image of Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Amen.